Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. In recent weeks, China stepped up its overseas propaganda campaigns to new heights. It subjected overseas journalists to bizarre, lengthy news conferences about Xinjiang held inside Chinese embassies overseas. This comes as the U.S. and U.K. are labeling China's treatment of the mainly Muslim Uyghur ethnic minority as genocide. More than a million members of the Uyghur ethnic minority are being held in political indoctrination camps. But domestically, the headlines were all about a Xinjiang-based musical called "The Wings of Song." This month, we're talking about China's global outreach attempts, and in particular, its use of the media. This is the subject of the latest report I've just done with our researcher Julia Bergen and Monash University's Johan Lidberg for the International Federation of Journalists. So, this episode, we've decided to hold more of a discussion, or let's say, kind of free for all, where we pick over the topic with an academic who's been researching the same field. Our panel includes Alex Jukalski. Associate Professor at University College Dublin, who has just published a book with possibly the most traumatizing cover you've ever seen, called "Making the World Safe for Dictatorship." Aaron Baggett Carter is an assistant professor at the University of Southern California, who researches Chinese foreign policy in the U.S. Let's start with a quick roundup where each of you sums up your recent work in, say, three minutes. Alex, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. So basically, my book is about how authoritarian states try to make themselves look good abroad, how they polish and manicure their image for foreign audiences. When I say that, I think the thing that comes to most people's mind initially is soft power. This concept coined in the early '90s, and that's certainly part of it. You know, it's it's、uh, external propaganda, it's public diplomacy, it's these kinds of things. But what I try to do in the book is talk a little bit more about. What I call authoritarian image management. So silencing critics abroad,、uh, trying to、um, kind of distract from or obfuscate from negative news about the state abroad,、uh, trying to cultivate、uh, key, you know, key opinion leaders, sometimes even sort of covertly、uh, abroad to, to tell the state's story. So I try to put these things in dialogue with one another、uh, to get a fuller picture of how states try to make themselves look good for foreign audiences. Julia, what what is what has your research been、uh, been finding? Well, in the most recent survey we did for the International Federation of Journalists, we surveyed fifty countries, and this was at the end of twenty twenty, so right at the end of a big year of COVID.、Um, and it was on the back of a survey we'd done the previous year,、um, and the idea was looking at whether or not coverage. Uh, China's reach had changed as a result of COVID nineteen, and what we found was that there was a clear uptick in Chinese media outreach. So, one of the questions asked about whether China had a visible presence in national media, and、uh, that rose from sixty four percent to seventy six percent. And when we asked about changes to coverage, we had fifty six percent of countries saying that coverage in national media had become more positive since the beginning of the pandemic. As opposed to, I think it was 24% who reported it had become more negative. And then we were also looking for things like dominant narratives in national media. So whether it was overtly positive or whether it was perhaps more negative. So, I mean, an- another thing that we found was this uptick in disinformation, and this was very notable in Italy, where. Where we had done a roundtable with journalists,、um, what was interesting was they spoke about a lot more Chinese disinformation, particularly tailored for an Italian audience. One Chinese narrative that they tried to push in Italy was that hand washing did not help protect against COVID.、Um, another was that the COVID virus had originated not in China but in Italy, and we also saw in Italy that the、um, is much more. 
Chinese state-run news entering the news ecosystem. So their state news agency, ANSA, has signed a deal with Xinhua, the Chinese state news agency. So 50 Xinhua stories a day run on the ANSA Newswire. An Italian journalist talked about how at times when unfavorable narratives about China were emerging, they would suddenly also get offered a lot more free Chinese state-run news material and documentaries and stuff already dubbed in Italian. They spoke about all these attempts to penetrate the Italian news market, but at the same time, and this was really interesting, this pattern that we saw again and again, the journalists kept saying, we don't think that it matters. And, you know, the Italian journalists were saying they believed that there were the necessary antibodies in the system to understand and identify fake news and refuse them. So that was quite a pattern that we saw recurring around the world, that even though there were far more attempts by China to push its narratives and reshape these new systems, journalists still believe that they were able to um, overcome them. Erin, could you uh, maybe walk us through what uh, just a really brief summary of what your recent research has been finding? Um, so I am working on a book on how uh, domestic politics in the U.S. and China affect the overall bilateral relationship. And one part of that book project focuses in particular on how Chinese lobbying in the United States uh, affects different political and media outcomes. So the part that speaks most directly to the, the wonderful recent reports um, looks at how uh, CCP lobbying um, towards private media outlets in the United States affects their subsequent coverage. So in particular, to do this work, I focused on the Foreign Agents Registration Act archive, which is a huge database maintained by the Department of Justice, uh, which um, sort of due to a very old law now requires lobbying firms that represent foreign governments uh, to disclose everything they're doing for that government on a biannual basis. So in principle, the, this database should contain every email that's sent on behalf of a foreign government, every telephone call, every meeting that's set up. Um, so this should present sort of a broad picture of how foreign governments are sort of seeking to lobby in the United States. So in particular, what I did was to focus on the sponsored media trips, sometimes called media junkets. Um, so as, as everyone here knows, the Chinese government will occasionally invite journalists from other countries to visit the CCP, to sort of see the CCP um, on this sort of all-expenses-paid tour, typically. Um, and so the first thing I looked at was the timing of those trips. They tend to be right um, in sort of politically sensitive moments, like the March National People's Congress meeting, where China is seeking to present itself as democratic to the outside world, something that ties in a lot with Alex's book. Um, and also in late May, right before Tiananmen, when the CCP is seeking to tamp down the typically very negative coverage of China's human rights abuses. Um, so, and, and I find that sort of those trips do in fact change coverage subsequently, uh, but I'm getting a bit longer than perhaps I should, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop for now. Um, could I quickly follow up on, on one of your points there, Aaron? I mean, you, why, why do you think dates matter? I mean, why do they care about Tiananmen and the National People's Congress outside their borders? Like, you can understand why domestically it's sensitive, but, but why do they care about what foreign journalists think around these dates? So that's a great question. So, you know, many China scholars know that dates at home in China are very sensitive. So the anniversaries of, um, you know, political movements create protests, et cetera. Uh, but it's interesting to see that sensitive dates exist for the external audience, too. Um, and I think that's because, you know, in the sort of foreign journalist calendar, there are certain moments when China becomes salient. Um, and there's a calendar of that, right? So um, and you do see the CCP trying to strategize around that. So one really great example, I think, um, is in March. So during the Nationalist People Congress, this is precisely when the CCP is trying to present itself as democratic to an external audience. Um, so one of my favorite anecdotes is that uh, they hired a former local Chicago sports journalist named Colin Linweber, um, who sort of will be, he's now a Xinhua correspondent. He gives these amazing briefings on the NPC and how it you know, signifies how democratic in practice China really is. So I think that sort of image management, which is you know, very much Alex's wheelhouse, um, is, is something Something that's very important and sort of occurs cyclically. I just, I just want to follow up on like Graham's question there about why states care, because this is, I think, not an obvious point, actually. So why should China care what a bunch of annoying foreign journalists think and readers of their newspapers who, let's face it, can't influence Chinese politics domestically? Like, why should they care? Um, and I think there are a few reasons. I mean, the first is that a bad image abroad can frustrate your foreign policy goals. 
So, you know, we've seen just in the last week, I think it was a couple of days ago as we were recording, um, the investment treaty with the European Union uh, get suspended um, in large measure because China, you know, the Chinese authorities were behaving in ways that were making making the government look really repressive and, and really uh, uh, uninterested in, in taking on some of the values that I think EU interlocutors thought they were advancing. Um, and domestic actors can use, uh, if, if a state has a bad image abroad or, or uh, criticism of the state abroad is gaining traction, domestic actors can use it and can link with those uh, with those people to, to maybe pressure uh, for change domestically. So I think states, you know, I, I think all three of the pieces of research that um, we're talking about uh, today, you know, have this underlying, uh, there's this underlying rationale that, that China, in this case, cares about how it's perceived abroad. And we know it kind of cares a lot about its image and, and does a lot of, of things to manage it. But it's worth kind of fleshing out why that is, why, why they would care at all in the first place. And I think the um, one really good example that we found in our research was the way in which journalists from Muslim countries have been taken specifically on tours to Xinjiang. Uh, Julia, do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, we found, based on the first survey, that there was a whole lot of factors that was actually influencing which countries China was targeting. It was overwhelmingly countries from repressive regimes. Um, it was also developing nations and then obviously BRI nations. But we found also this Muslim nation focus of these journalism tours. Um, and the idea was to bring them to Xinjiang to showcase three things mainly. One, it was the culture of Xinjiang and it was this sort of sterilized culture where it was kind of museumified, if you can say such a thing. Um, and so there was that side of things, you know, they'd put on dancing, they'd put on a real show um, and they'd wow these journalists from these countries. And then they'd also, you know, try and cast Xinjiang as this red hot travel destination as well as this economic success story. And the idea was to bring the journalists there, showcase what's going on, have them go back to their home countries, write either glowing reviews of what China was doing to combat terrorism. And these were often countries that were dealing with um, terrorism themselves, so they were sort of sympathetic to the cause. Or else they were would try and get them to not report on the human rights atrocities that were happening there. And that was through focusing on the economic side of things. Um, and what we saw, I mean, in Indonesia in particular, was this huge amount of stories coming back through a number of different media outlets um, and through journalists, you know, writing these big exposés on the amazing experience they'd had, the people they'd spoken to. Um, in Turkey as well, there was the guitarist, um, this famous guitarist who had allegedly gone missing. China rolled him out and said, here he is. He's, um, and so they got journalists to write a story about the fact that he was there. So there was all sorts of things like that happening, which proved to be very, very effective in spreading their message pretty wide. One thing that was, I think, for a Western audience, almost dissonant was that they would take Muslim journalists to the political indoctrination camps and actually take them on tours of the facilities. You know, there again, they would see people dancing and smiling and then they would go back and write these stories where they would, you know, literally write things like Xinjiang is a happy place <laughs> because we saw people singing and dancing there. And, uh, you know, when there was a vote in the UN in October 2020 regarding support for China's policies in Xinjiang, not a single Muslim nation condemned China. So you can see how those strategic goals that Alex was talking about really work in action. Uh, can I, just a very quick follow-up question for Julia. Um, so you talked to some of these journalists. Weren't some of them sceptical um, about it? And, and you know, did it have a backfire effect for any of the journalists? It depended on where they were from. So we actually heard from some journalists that when they were taken to these parts of Xinjiang or parts of China, they'd separate them out into particular groups. So there was, you know, your Western journalists who are obviously naturally very sceptical of what they were seeing. Then you had a cohort of journalists who were sort of sitting on the fence. They came from countries that had had independent press, but 
at the same time, they could believe perhaps some of the economic stories because they could see it for their own eyes, but might not believe what was happening in the political indoctrination camps. And then there were countries where they really were willing to believe um, exactly what was put in front of them. And for them, the show of culture was convincing enough that it was something to write about. And so they actually worked to separate those journalists from being in conversation with one another so that those who were completely sceptical couldn't influence those that could easily be convinced. But yeah, I mean, speaking in general terms, some of the journalists that we spoke to who had been on these tours uh, were really struck by just how effective what China was doing was and how well they'd preserved the culture. and, And I think this is their edge, and I know Alex speaks about this as well, is that, you know, they have this amazing market economy to give to other nations, and that's why it is seen as desirable, and that's why what they're able to do. Uh, is largely so successful. And I think that that very much came out in some of these trips to Xinjiang and broader parts of China is that there is something to write about and and that helps them. I I want to ask Aaron, because I know you've actually done some quantitative research looking at how narratives have been changed by these trips. So in the US, the China-US Exchange Foundation which was set up by Tung Chihua, Hong Kong's former chief executive. It's taken 127 American journalists on trips to China. Did it make any difference to the stories they wrote? It actually really did. And this is this is one of the really interesting things, right? I think a lot of journalists and academics go on these trips thinking that, you know, I, you know, I have the tools to sort of critically evaluate what's presented to me. This is not going to change my coverage in any way. But it actually does. Um, not not in the most obvious way, right? So coverage doesn't become much more positive about China after attending one of these trips, but it does shift in subtle ways that are consistent with the CCP's geopolitical goals. Namely, there's this really interesting pivot away from US China. China military competition, away from China's human rights abuses, and towards um, economic relations, right? So the area in which, you know, China would most like to present itself as sort of a rising global power, right? Because, you know, economic conflicts can be sort of sorted out, um, whereas, you know, military and human rights issues, um, those are sort of traditionally thornier issues in U.S.-China relations. Um, so you do see that pivot, and it does persist for sort of in the three months after the trip. And the way that I looked at that was to compare outlets that participated on these trips um, to outlets that did not participate on a given trip, but you know had participated in the past, so they weren't sort of ideologically opposed to going on a trip. So they're similar, similar in that regard. And you do see this divergence in coverage after a trip um, in those outlets that participated. One thing that leaped out for your research was that they don't just target the big national outlets. They're targeting smaller papers or, or, you know, at least subnational papers like, say, for example, the Dallas Morning News or the Grand Rapids Free Press. These are right up there alongside the big ones. Why are they doing that? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of my interviews were paused due to COVID, but I did get some really interesting interview-based material on this, speaking with journalists. And one one uh, thing that came out was that in a lot of these sort of regional outlets, uh, you might have a reporter who's newly assigned to the China beat, and they might not have been to China. So I think that the CCP knows that the scope for influence in these smaller outlets is perhaps greater. And also, they reach a lot of people, right? So not everyone reads just the New York Times and the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, these regional outlets are really influential uh, in terms of shaping local opinion. Um, And that matters, right? Sort of public opinion about foreign policy can sort of influence the broader environment in which China is discussed in the United States. So I think that's that's part of the strategy there. This is so interesting because the, the beauty of the tactic is that it only has to be successful a little bit to really be worth it. So, you know, if you send 10 people on, on one of these junkets and one of them comes out a true believer, right, that's worth it, right? Um, it's relatively, you know, in the scheme of things, these trips are relatively cheap. And if, you know, on the scale of state budgets, certainly. Um, and if one of them comes out being a true believer and, you know, writes for the next 40 years about how great China is and how great relations between you know, their country and, and China is, that pays for itself, you know, hundreds of times over. Uh, and the skeptics that go, you know, they were probably skeptics, it's going to be skeptics anyway, right? So, um, so it's not clear that they really lose much there. Can I just ask, I'm sorry to ask about me, 
But Aaron, just explain that thing in your research where you, my name came up in your research. Yeah, that was an amazing finding. I was I was so glad you reached out on Twitter because of that. So um, one of one of the methods I used to look at how coverage pivots from military and human rights areas to economic coverage after going on the trip is to use something called a distinctiveness algorithm, which looks at the words that are distinctive in coverage before and after the trip. So things that weren't occurring very frequently before and they are after. And so what's really interesting is that in one, one, two of the really interesting terms that signified the pivot away um, from uh, human rights, so so Louisa Lim's name was there and so was Mitt Romney's. That was really interesting to see those two names jump out as sort of a signal of how human rights is really important for one uh, group of outlets, but for, for others it's really about banks and exchange rates um, and that sort of sort of international financial relationship. Alex, I wanted to get you to talk a bit about your research about Confucius Institutes, because that also doesn't it show that you don't even need to send journalists to China, just as if you build a Confucius Institute overseas, it somehow affects news coverage. I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit similar to some of the research logic Aaron was just describing. So what we did is we... Um, had a database of all the Confucius Institutes in the world and we geocoded them. So we knew physically where they were located. Um, and we compared the tone of stories in media in a 25 kilometer radius around that Confucius Institute on topics relevant to China. So in practical terms, what that means, it's, it's your, it's the kind of newspapers that, that Aaron was um, interviewing, uh, you know, and tracking for her project, right? It's local newspapers, local news outlets. And what we found is that um, having a Confucius Institute in a locality improved the, the media tone about China uh, by about five or six percent. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, uh, to describe that quantitatively, but if you read the stories uh, of, you know, at, at the particular tones, you actually really notice that the stories are talking about China in a more positive note. And of course, you know, we stripped out all the stories that were by Xinhua and all this, all the stories that were, you know, uh, by Chinese outlets. So these are really local independent journalists. Um, why that is? Well, you know, if you're, if you're an independent journalist writing a story about China and you need to call a local uh, university for expertise or comment about China, well, maybe you call the Confucius Institute, or maybe they put on anodyne cultural events, you know, Chinese New Year or whatever, and uh, and you go cover it, and that's a positive story. Whereas, you know, in the absence of a Confucius Institute, you wouldn't have done that. So I think in the U.S. in particular, we think about, you know, we see this like kind of backlash against Confucius Institutes, particularly uh, in the last administration, but, but, but continuing in, into the current one uh, in, in many respects. Um, and that might not be representative of what's going on in, in the world, right? Um, where these institutes are providing um, or are perceived to provide, um, you know, a useful, a useful service. Uh, and, and they do actually uh, improve the way China's talked about uh, in, in, the, in their communities. So, Aaron, I wanted to ask you a question about something a bit more old-fashioned that, that people may not know that China engages in, which is old-fashioned political lobbying in the U.S., um, so your research found that since 2003, over 90% of spend of lobbying was on the media, apart from a couple of years where they were getting um, involved in the Sinuk, um, Unical kind of fracas. But another thing you found was that um, the nature of lobbying had changed very dramatically since Xi Jinping came to power. Can you, can you tell us what, um, what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that... So lobbying under Xi Jinping, um, and this is inclusive of the two years before he came to power too. So like many recent changes in China, it's, there's sort of a two or three year um, change that starts before he comes to power. Um, but since then, um, the coverage or sort of lobbying has really changed, right? So before that, there was a lot of traditional political and economic lobbying, the type you see from many countries. Um, but since then, it's really sort of grown in this, this media direction. And I think that a great way to describe what's happened um, was actually disclosed, believe it or not, in one of the um, statements under disclosed under FARA 
by BLJ Worldwide, which is one of the big lobbying firms that represents the Chinese government. Uh, BLJ is responsible for the very sort of infamous uh, Rose of the Desert Vogue piece, puff piece uh, for Bashar al-Assad's wife right before sort of the massive human rights crackdown there, which has since been sort of scrubbed from the internet. Um, but they do represent a number of extremely repressive clients. Um, so so they, they were representing China in this particular contract, and what they said they were trying to do was to um, create a community of like-minded experts on US-China relations. And so that, that sort of really is a great, succinct summary of a lot of the strategy behind the media lobbying, which is targeted towards you know, policy relevant, for maybe like policy influential people. Um, and the goal is really to sort of shift the tone of discussion um, in a way that's more favorable to China's rise, um, downplays the issues about military competition and human rights, um, and sort of tampers the prospect of uh, conflict or sort of U.S. containment policies. So, you know, a lot of this, um, I think, in the U.S., I think it's different in other countries, but a lot of this in the U.S., I think, is about damage mitigation, trying to sort of downplay the sort of rise in, you know, um, uh, negative public opinion towards China, criticism of China's human rights abuses and military um, policies, and I think that damage containment is kind of the goal of many of these policies. It's interesting. One of the things we found was QSO, China-U.S. Exchange Foundation, that takes these journalists from U.S. on these junkets to China. One of the things that we found in a memo was that they were planning to build a Chinese town in Detroit called Gungho. So the plan or the memo suggests that they were planning on redeveloping an entire city block to showcase Chinese innovation, you know, using design elements from both countries. And the budget was between eight and ten million dollars. Um, and there was even plans to shoot a reality TV show uh, following the development of the community. And it was sort of meant to be this living metaphor of the, the promise of the US-China relationship. And that was a plan that was put forward by BLJ to QSEF, one of their lobbying schemes. Um, and there was a, also a stage play. That's what, that's what you get for your uh, 100, 100 grand a month retainer. This looks build a city block. <laughs> and it was marketed as this will be very difficult for the news media to be critical of the project. Um, so Could, Couldn't imagine anything going wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, I think it shows just, just how many ways in which they are trying to push through to influence people's opinions in, in subtle ways. Yeah, and the, the other prong of it was a Broadway play called The Reunion. This was another suggestion that BLJ made. And they wanted to put on a play called The Reunion, which would have families in China and the US. And the final sort of climactic scene would have them reunited with by a live video link on stage. I know, Alex, you've argued that soft-powered doesn't really exist in an authoritarian context. You know, is this all sharp power? Well, first of all, if anybody working for BLJ is listening to this, like, please get in contact with us. These stories sound amazing, and I want to know more about your plans. Um, no, so it, so my argument is not so much that soft power doesn't exist or doesn't work. It's just that it's an isolated way of looking at what authoritarian states do, right? Um, that it's one part of a much bigger kind of tapestry of of how they operate abroad. So you can't think of, in the same way that you can't think about kind of domestic propaganda without thinking about domestic censorship, I don't think you can think about external propaganda without thinking about the mechanisms that states uh, use to um, either kind of scrub messages or obscure from messages or target critics, target target dissidents abroad. Um, those, those things kind of work in tandem with one another. And uh, I think we lose a lot of our understanding of what a state like China, I mean, my book is comparative. It looks at lots of different cases, but you know, in the case of China as well, I think we lose a lot if we just focus on the Broadway shows and the harebrained schemes to, to build cities in Detroit. I mean, Alex, this is one of the real valuable things about your book is you're not just looking at China, you're looking at a whole range of dictatorships and autocracies, um, everything from apartheid era South Africa to Rwanda um, to Saudi Arabia to North Korea. I mean, is China different to other dictatorships other than its size? Is there anything in its toolkit that are, are if you like, China-specific in its image management? The main, dif I think two main differences. One is, it is exactly what you mentioned, is, is the size, right? And the scope of what it's doing. Um, it's just really unmatched. I mean, you know, you could think about a historical parallel with the Soviet Union or 
probably be the most, you know, the most apt comparison just because it's global in scope and, uh, and, and ambition, I would say. I think the, the way it differs from other states and even the Soviet Union is um, the issue of market access that companies and states, universities, and newspapers, everybody wants good relations with China, right? Because they want access to, to their market for whatever it is they're selling. And uh, so that gives China a lot more leverage uh, about, you know, for, for how it can um, either silence critical voices or amplify uh, supportive voices. I, I mean, I think the other thing uh, to note is, um, in, in many ways, China has a good story to tell. It has a, a, a record of success in a lot of different domains uh, that a lot of other authoritarian states, frankly, don't have. Uh, and so it can amplify those and it has actual material that it can use to tell a good story while it can use those other kind of tactics to silence the critics. Uh, you know, it's, it's external propaganda is not it's not fabricated in that sense. Right? Can I can I jump in with just a fun anecdote there? Sure. Um, so so, that, so that's really that's really interesting. So in our uh, sort of first book on autocratic propaganda, one of the things that we sort of try to think about is what we call honest propaganda. So this idea that there's sort of this mixing rate across propaganda strategies, right? So if you publish nine articles that are more or less factual, you convince readers that like, okay, this is a reasonable outlet. I'll believe what they write. So that gives you the opportunity to publish a tenth article that you know is a falsehood or is spun in a very you know meaningful way that sort of advances an autocracy strategic goal so let me give you an example if you go to the china daily website um there's a lot on there that you know may seem reasonable right there's a lot of coverage that you know relatively objective and that persuades readers that like okay maybe this is sort of a reasonable publication to follow um and then every so often you'll have an article like one published in 2011 which is entitled tiananmen square massacre a myth Right, sort of, sort of increasing the credulity about a publication allows um, autocratic propaganda apparatuses to insert this coverage that sort of is false if you mix honest propaganda um, in this way. So I think that that sort of strategy is really important um, and is certainly one that's used in these external-facing propaganda apparatuses that are targeting citizens in democratic countries. Yeah, I think that's that's a great uh, that's a great point to make. Um, there's a I think a common misconception when we talk about propaganda that it's always false, right? and and that's just that's just not true, right? It's a, it's information with a purpose, uh, and uh, it's a it's a matter of highlighting certain things, downplaying other things, spinning certain things, but it's not unremittingly false. And so you know those nine stories that you mentioned, Aaron, you know they do give. Uh, that, uh, you know, that outlet a certain degree of credibility. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's also about having certain stories withheld. So you can still be pushing truth in the way that you report stories. But if you can stop reporting on Hong Kong, reporting on human rights in Xinjiang and Tibet, um, and if you can just push those economic stories and China as a global powerhouse, then that's a success. And those stories aren't necessarily pushing false information, but they're just turning the picture away from what China regards as negative representations of itself. And I think that's why it's so important that so many foreign journalists have now been effectively kicked out of China. I mean, we've seen at least 20 in the last year or so. But also our research showed that lots of journalists are not getting visas to go in. So we're getting this kind of vacuum in China coverage, which, you know, for example, in the Italy context is being filled by stories from Sinhua, or, you know, they might take uh, footage from CGTN or CCTV. And so we would argue that is subtly reshaping or not so subtly reshaping global, the global information landscape. But I guess my question particularly uh, for you two is, to what extent is this normal behavior? To what extent does China's behavior in the information space now constitute kind of gray zone information warfare? Well, you asked a question with a bunch of loaded terms to two academics. So, of course, we're going to quibble about definitions, right? Like, this is what we do for a living. So, information warfare, I'm not sure. But, I mean, what, what I think is clear, I mean, so I did some research with a, a co-author on Xinhua. And we, you know, we tracked... Something like one more than a million articles from from the the, the wire service um, across the world in different geographical and linguistic uh, groupings, and what's very clear is that the content is adjusted for different uh, 
um, different audiences. So if you read Japanese or Korean content from from Xinhua, it's uh, you know it's really not about Japan or Korea at all. It's actually just about how China's a good neighbor and China's really anodyne and like you know cool cultural stuff going on in Village X, whatever, right? Um, whereas if you read uh, the same source uh, in French or Spanish or, or English, um, you know, it's about how the West is hypocritical. It's about, uh, you know, highlighting negative stories about, uh, about Western countries. Again, not false, right? But just a matter of highlighting, highlighting and emphasizing those more. Uh, and so, you know, is that information warfare or external propaganda or, you know, I don't know, you know, but but what's clear to me is that there's a strategy at play, uh, and that it's um, it's more sophisticated, and I think actually a lot of observers give it credit for. Yeah, I would I would very much agree with that. Um, so I think that there is this sort of like widely held misconception that the this sort of propaganda content that's produced by autocrats uh, for consumption of democracies is sort of ridiculous, and of course people are going to see through it. So uh, with uh, co-author Brett Carter, uh, we recently wrote um, a paper that is out in Security Studies, and what we did was first we categorized RT, formerly Russia Today propaganda, um, and sort of looked at descriptively what it's talking about, um, and then we ran a survey to assess if it actually affected the views of American citizens. And what's interesting is that like, a lot of a lot of well-known people think that RT is just ridiculous and could not possibly have any effect. So like there are some really fun quotes to that effect. So Nick Kristof said that RT is just a Russian propaganda arm that won't matter very much. Uh, Washington Post said that, you know, if RT is Moscow's propaganda arm, it's not very good at its job. Um, so there's, you know, there's this skepticism about this stuff, you know, reading the China Daily, the corollary here, you know, are people really going to believe this headline that Tiananmen Square Massacre is a myth? Um, but in fact, like, we found that this sort of propaganda content actually really is influential in terms of what people believe. So. For RT, we sort of use as a treatment a bunch of articles about how RT is covering American foreign policy. What we found was that it made Americans as sort of a representative sample of American citizens um, much less likely to support an engaged U.S. foreign policy. And the effect was sort of between 10 to 20 percentage points, which is a pretty big in political science terms. Um, And so really sort of you see sort of withdrawal of American support for engaging with allies, supporting allies, sort of upholding um, global you know, sort of the global liberal order, although that's a contentious term. Um, so those, that sort of propaganda is effective. There are two sort of sub-findings that are quite depressing. One is that that effect obtains even among uh, college degree holders. Um, although, you know, you might not be surprised if it's also obtaining among journalists going on the, the CCP press junkets. Um, and also the effect obtained even if we labeled the propaganda article as produced and financed by the Russian government. So the idea of disclosing who is the sort of source of this article that had no impact on its ability to sort of influence American uh, public opinion. So I think that, you know, although people like to snipe at these outlets, I think that we should take them seriously in terms of how they can actually influence views, um, even among educated people, and even when people are told they're produced by foreign governments. So in the case of China, I mean, the FAO findings are that it spent something like, isn't it more than $20 million in some years on these inserts, advertorial inserts um, that are... have been running for many years in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, um, some of these really big name publications. But what you're saying, Aaron, is that these can work. Uh, Alex, you've, you've also done some research on this, haven't you, recently? Yeah, so I did a very similar research designed to, to Aaron and her co-author there. It was a survey experiment, right, where you give, uh, you know, group A reads some articles, group B reads uh, the same articles, but with a China, a pro-CCP advertorial insert, you know, that this the kind of inserts, uh, Louisa, that you and Julia wrote about in your, in your Guardian piece a few years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and then you, you ask uh, the respondents to ask answer questions about their attitudes towards China and towards China's role in their country and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, my findings were a little bit less dramatic than Aaron's. I didn't find a very big effect, actually. Uh, but to the extent that there was an effect, uh, it was among more highly educated people who follow the news closely. And so we all think we're, you know, so smart and we're immune to, to propaganda techniques. But 
There's a reason propaganda has um, has stayed around for centuries, right? It works. It, you know, it doesn't work all the time, and it doesn't work on every person, but it works enough of the time to be worth that twenty million or, or whatever it is, which is really, frankly, nothing in terms of a state budget. I'm getting research envy here, so I have to mention some research that I'm doing on WeChat official accounts, um, <laughs> which is is basically showing that. Um, the main play isn't um, just about a positive narrative of China. It's about reducing the confidence of Australians in their own institutions and their own politicians. This is a major thrust. I mean, looking forward, what what do you see as the... Uh, do you see Chinese propaganda abroad changing and evolving in any directions? Um, a question for all of you. Theoretically, what we know about uh, authoritarian states as they learn and adapt. So I think we have every reason to think that uh, whatever new technologies or new approaches are available to uh, to external propaganda organs of authoritarian states, they're going to use. Right? I mean, you see it, you know, in the past few years in um, in in the in the social media world, right? Where um, prior to a few years ago, even you know, Chinese uh, officials and uh, propaganda workers maybe weren't so active in. Twitter and, and, and these kinds of spaces, but but now they are, right? And uh, you're seeing as well some of those, um, you know, some of those messages be laundered through other, you know, through non-official party uh, workers uh, on Twitter. So you're already seeing adaptation kind of right in front of your eyes, and, and I don't see any reason why in China or any other case states aren't going to keep learning and, and adapting uh, uh, on their methods. Can I just ask Aaron, I just want to reframe that question a little bit. To what extent do you think China's efforts are threatening global freedom of information? Well, I think that, I mean, I think it's clear that the CCP is very much trying to promote its own narratives. Um, and I think that it's it's using these sort of government financed propaganda apparatus, which I, I, I define propaganda apparatuses as um, uh, news outlets that are financed by a government, uh, at, least, uh, at least majority control. Um, and it's very much trying to promote those messages um, in the international sort of informational ecosystem. I think that strategies diverge by area, and I think that's one of the really interesting things that your report brought out, um, which is that I think in the U.S. there's a lot of focus on damage control because public opinion about China has been trending so negative lately. Um, I think that everywhere you're going to see a great deal of denialism, trying to sort of muddy the water about what's actually happening in Xinjiang. I think that China is going to try to, or the Chinese government trying to try to avoid having that be labeled as genocide for as long as possible in order to avoid sanction by the international community. It's hard to sort of be seen as sort of a major, you know, power in a multipolar world order, which is what China wants, um, if you're sort of conducting genocide at home. So I think that's going to be a major effort. Um, but I think that the prospects for creating more um, pro-China sentiment, uh, particularly in the African countries in your survey sample, I think that that's a really um, important area as well. So, I mean, China, if you, you, you phrase this in terms of, you know, changing or challenging the sort of informational free flow of information, um, China can very much use censorship to do that at home, right? Sort of all the media outlets in China have to be majority owned by the government. Um, China can't do that abroad, and that very much conditions the propaganda strategy that it can employ, right? So um, in, in our first book project on autocratic propaganda, we characterize uh, the propaganda that China uses towards its own citizens as essentially trying to intimidate them out of protesting. We show that it has that effect. Um, however, uh, China can't produce that sort of content for the international audience because people would simply choose not to consume it. So it has to try more persuasive tactics. Um, so I think, you know, so I would say no in this, you know, strict sense that China is not sort of reshaping the global informational environment through censorship or limiting other viewpoints, but it is proactively trying to spread its own viewpoint um, in, in a way that's sort of consistent with the CCP's geopolitical goals. Can I, can I jump in on, on one point there? Another way of thinking about Luisa's question about free flows of information is that if you think about uh, countries like Australia or the U.S. or Ireland where I'm sitting, you know, there's a, there's a liberal public sphere where there are free speech protections, right? Obviously, in, in the Chinese sphere, as, as Aaron has, has just mentioned, that that's not the case. So you have an asymmetrical relationship where uh, the Chinese state can put forward propaganda in uh, societies with liberal public spheres, and there's not that much they can do about it, actually. Right. Um, you know, you could say you could censor that information or block it, but that's inconsistent with the values of free speech and free expression. So, you know, 
well, we're, we're rightfully, I think, very hesitant to do that. Um, so that's why you see, I, I don't think there's a clear answer to it because it's not limiting public, you know, limiting the free flow of information. It's using the infrastructure of the free flow of information to actually advance the messages, right? And so um, what, you know, what kinds of policy outcomes do you get from that? You get like labeling of, you know, China state media on, you know, on social media, um, or you get FARA, right? Which allows you to go look at where the money is going in these relationships. And that's all useful and uh, should, should be continued and should be bolstered. But it's that fundamental tension of living in a public sphere that, that values freedom of speech. There's a limit to what you can do to, to limit these kinds of, uh, of activities. So we're all facing a future where we will be watching more videos about Xinjiang musicals, more advertorials. Yeah. I mean, whether you're watching them or not, they'll be there. So I'm I'm curious, a lot of lobbying, it seems, isn't direct. Like it goes through um, companies that lobby on China's behalf without actually having to receive assent um, from the Chinese government. So it doesn't come up in FARA findings. I mean, is there any way you can can model that sort of attempt to shape the narrative? So so that's a great question. Um, So, I mean, some anecdotes suggest that that's, you know, the scope for influence through those other uh, sort of avenues is much, much larger than through FARA. So one great example is that... um, when uh, some important trade legislation was being passed in 2000 that would grant China most favored na- nation trading status and sort of permanent normal trade relations, China, um, through through its lobbying firm, spent $800,000 to sort of get this bill passed. Uh, but in reality, it sort of corralled around 300 U.S. multinational firms to sort of spend $8 million also trying to get the the, uh, the legislation passed. So there, there's definitely the scope um, of sort of, you know, you know, the carrot and stick of access to the Chinese market that can sort of compel U.S. firms to lobby on the Chinese government's behalf. There's also a really important loophole in lobbying, right? So um, there, there are actually two lobbying registration systems in the U.S. So FARA is if you're a foreign government, um, and there's this uh, LDA Lobbying Disclosure Act, which is if you're a foreign business, right? Because most of the lobbying is, you know, just typical regular foreign corporations, you know, trying to get access to the U.S. market, right? It's very normal behavior. Um, and there's a lot of gray zone that if you're, say, a subsidiary of a state-owned enterprise, you can actually often make a legal case that you or should be able to drop out of FARA into LDA. And under LDA, the disclosure requirements are really not onerous at all. So that's another huge area um, for for um, more influence. So I think there, there was one really great study on this by by Peter Courtney and some co-authors, and they looked at the LDA firm and they found that the um, the third largest uh, registrant um, in, in the Cayman Islands was sort of a subsidiary of Alibaba. So you see this, you know huge uh, lobbying effort that, you know, may have some political impact, um, but formally is classified as just purely corporate um, economic lobbying. Looking back over the research you've done and and looking forward to the future, um, are the Italian journalists that Louisa's talked to right, you know, are are the antibodies there to to stop this this working? Shall I go first? I mean, I I, I do think one of the things that we all need to get a lot smarter about media literacy. And I think that includes specifically journalists who somehow believe that they're above uh, propaganda, they're above falling for these things. I don't think any of us are. And I think, uh, you know, what our research shows really clearly um, is the sort of incremental nature of this. Um, one of the one of the comparisons that we draw is to the island building in in the South China Seas. You know, there we saw Chinese dredges heaping up sand and nobody did anything because nobody knew what to do. And nobody did anything until suddenly there were whole brand new military installations on new, you know, sand atolls and nobody had stopped it. Nobody had said anything. I mean, I think in information terms, we all just need to get a lot smarter about what we consume and where it's from. No, I, I endorse that uh, entirely. I mean, one of the things we haven't addressed is how the media industry has uh, changed so much, obviously, over the past, you know, with digitization. And, uh, you know, so that uh, gave a window of opportunity where a lot of outlets were underfunded. You know, some people talk about a crisis of local news, right, where um, where there's, you know, the, the kind of bottom is falling out of a lot of those, uh, um, a lot of those operations. And so that gives a state, 
like Xinhua, hey, you know, we have a, a, a cheap wire or even in some cases free wire service we'll just give you. Um, and, you know, that, you know, that those opportunities are, are, are created by um, the media ecosystem, you know, abroad, uh, but uh, states are able to, to kind of take advantage of that. Uh, so, so where are we going? I mean, you know, I, I don't know, but, um, you know, I, I think this problem is not going away and uh, it will continue to change and evolve. Aaron, your thoughts? So, so I, uh, I'll be a bit contrary. I think, I think we do not have the antibodies uh, to, to deal with this. I think that um, it, based on sort of my survey evidence, also Alex's survey evidence, we know that these sorts of, um, there, this content sort of produced by uh, autocratic governments does have a major impact on how citizens view uh, their own democracy's role in the world and what that should be. I think those changes are important. Um, more broadly, I think my, my, the book manuscript I'm working on now, um, one of the main arguments is that um, domestic politics on each side are sort of really the sources of a lot of the conflicts in U.S.-China relations. But China and the U.S. know that, right? And the way that they try to deal with that, I argue, is that they try to change the character of each other's political system, right? So China works very effectively um, through lobbying, right? So a system that is legal and in place um, sort of allows foreign governments to um, have a role in, in this process. And I show that that actually produces more favorable policy towards China, right? More positive bills about China going through Congress and fewer hostile bills, right? So that that's effective. Um, these techniques to change media coverage um, in not in massive ways, but in subtle but geopolitically important way, those are effective too. Um, so I think that China has become very adept in uh, using the institutions that are sort of fundamental to our democracy in ways that are uh, favorable to its own own strategies. Um, that said, I mean, the U.S. has also tried to respond to this challenge of China's domestic politics, politics occasionally producing conflictual behavior um, in its own ways, right? So for the United States government, um, it has for a long time tried to promote grassroots democracy in China through a lot of various programs, but especially the Voice of America. Um, there, sort of, my analysis is still ongoing, but I think that the evidence is much weaker that the U.S. has been able to produce measurable important changes in the way that China has been able to produce important changes in the U.S. So I think that, you know, I think that to, to some extent, these are challenges for democratic integrity. Um, I, I don't think there is an obvious antidote or sort of vaccine to be uh, sort of in the moment, um, but I do think that these these are issues that are difficult to wrestle with because a lot of them are fundamental to our sort of normative values about our democracy and openness, um, and that's that's the sort of I think this is a debate that should be in the public sphere, uh, but being conscious of those those important commitments that democracies have. Julia, Alex, Aaron, thanks for joining Thank us. You. Thank you. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Editing for this episode was by Andy Hazel. Background research by Julia Bergen and Xu Chong. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.